watchers in the fourth dimension. Really? What me? No idea. It's got four wheels and it goes. Hello and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And we have our own system, thank you. Only it isn't foolproof. And this episode, we're discussing a story where returning aliens invade a human base on the moon as a staging post for an invasion of Earth. Surprisingly, it's not the moon base part two, but actually the return of our favorite Martians in The Seeds of Death. This story came out of producer Peter Bryant's relentless desire for more monsters. And almost as soon as season five's The Ice Warriors had been broadcast, he approached writer Brian Hales for another story featuring the titular monsters. The reason for this was twofold. Firstly, they had actually been relatively popular, but they were also expensive to make, and reusing the costumes would help justify their cost. Hales initially worked on a storyline that he had tentatively titled The Lords of the Red Planet, but the production team weren't happy with the initial storylines, and he started again from scratch on what would ultimately become The Seeds of Death. This was all happening at the same time of uncertainty of Fraser Hines' involvement in the story. Initially, a new male companion named Nick was written into the story, and the scripts featured later an unspecified male companion. In the end, Hines agreed to appear in the show until the end of the season, and so the scripts were once again rewritten to feature Jamie. Additionally, Pat Troughton was due to take a vacation, and he would be off for episode four. Hales struggled with all of these rewrites, and so episodes three to six were once again heavily rewritten by script editor Terence Dix. Dix removed an entire subplot from episodes three and four, which would have seen Kelly being mind-controlled by the Ice Warriors, along with a line in which Eldred would have revealed that his rocket had achieved the first manned moon landing. It became increasingly apparent in the run-up to this story that NASA would pretty soon be successful on a moon landing in the very near future. Originally, there were meant to be four Ice Warriors available for the Seeds of Death, excluding Slar and the Grand Marshal, but this was cut to just three in order to cut costs. And it was during this story and its production that it was announced to the press that Patrick Troughton would be leaving the show at the end of the season, and so planning began in earnest for the next iteration of the show. But, back to the Seeds of Death, we have a few returning faces behind the scenes. In the director's seat, we once again have Michael Ferguson, who we last saw directing season three's The War Machines. Providing incidental music, Dudley Simpson once again returns. And as costumer, Bobby Bartlett gives her penultimate bow, but we won't see her again for another couple of years. One new face behind the scenes is designer Paul Allen, who we will see on the show a couple more times, and he's also known for work on Out of the Unknown, Survivors, Blake Seven, and another show that absolutely bloody everyone at the time worked on. <laughs> Which shall remain nameless. Sad cars. <laughs> Indeed and both of its spin-offs. With all of the behind the scenes information wrapped up, we move into our short summary, which is with Riley this time. Make it so, Riley. <clears throat> it's the future, and from New York to London to Beijing, the kids are going crazy for TMAT. But what is it, and could it kill your children? It can, because the Ice Warriors, <laughs> an alien race cursed with having to speak while wearing braces, have taken over the TMAT moon base with the intent to play a practical joke on all the world's major cities by sending them balloons filled with foam that inflate and then explode upon arrival. Luckily, the Doctor and crew head to the moon via a rocket to stop them, as they slowly take over the moon base by offing the Ice Warriors one by one by leading them into a makeshift microwave, several old 
white men with briefcases and ill-fitting fetish gear back on Earth wonder loudly about what is going on. Cleverly, the Ice Warriors preemptively destroy the weather controls for the Earth because rain, that's right, water, 71% of the surface of the Earth, is the only thing that can stop the foam. But once again, the Doctor and crew step in and get the rain to fall. Well, that's great, but what about that large Ice Warrior invasion force that is on the way? Well, the Doctor and Miss Kelly have tricked them by changing the homing beacon for their fleet with one that could, would direct them into the sun, causing them all to die in horrific pain and anguish as their reptilian bodies are slowly burned to a crisp and then disintegrated by that hellish ball of gas that will one day consume us all. <laughs> That is a lovely ending line, but I, I think I can I can sum this up much shorter. Crotchety geriatrics versus asthmatic lizard men. <laughs> uh, both are accurate. <laughs> All right, episode one. We start with that wonderful musical cue during the title card that called back wonderfully to the Ice Warriors, the original story. I really liked that. I thought that was a nice touch. I'm going to go out and say right now at the very beginning that this was much better than the original Ice Warriors. Now we can move on. I'm with you on that. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I'm not sure about the music. It alternated between, hey, that's really good and oh my God, please stop. That is on par with the original Ice Warriors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, the original music, as I can tell, is the Saturday Night Live skit about Blue Oyster Cult, but instead of cowbell it's timpani drum <laughs> and i believe the musical cue is actually labeled i fell on the synthesizer <laughs> i like that beginning it makes it a little interesting and again since it's just an opening shot nothing's going on it fits well enough one thing i do have to say is i'm really sick and tired of really obnoxious robotic voices Oh, but his voice is so good, though. He sounds always slightly just pissed off at everyone or, or disappointed at all times. When I have a speaking computer, that's how I want it to sound. Just disappointed in me. Disappointed and it won't stop between sentences. <laughs> anyway, so we find ourselves on a base in the future. It would be a shame if it were to come under siege. See, they try to trick you later on by having some shots outside the base, but we've been here before many times. Yes, we have. We know what you're doing. We see your foam machine. You're not fooling us, BBC. <laughs> At least there were other sets and there were other places. There was Earth. Earth was a totally different scene than the base that was under siege. I think it was a little bit better than our base under siege season of season five, but... That's true. Well, they changed the formula a little bit. It's, it is a base under siege, but it's immediately then that siege is over because it's taken over. And then it's more of a base under rescue yeah. story. <laughs> and there's actually no bad boss this time. He's just kind of crotchety. Radner, was that his name? Because at first I thought I actually wrote something like, oh, God, it's not one of those. But he's just moderately annoying. So it's all right. Yeah. And of course, we get Miss Kelly, who... Oh, I love. I love. She's her. such a badass, no nonsense woman. Yes, please. I also said no nonsense. <laughs> and she is rocking those Romulan bangs. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> she is the only one in a well-fitting costume as well. Everyone else has that awful baggy costume with the sex straps. Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I miss Martin Bohr's sleek costume design. Right. Yeah, but he lost his mind at some point. I mean, we saw that. <laughs> he did. That is accurate. He did so well, and then all of a sudden he just went off the deep end, and I was very sad. The Dominators drove him to despair, obviously. 
It would drive anyone to despair. But there were some really interesting shots in the serial overall and in this first yes. episode. One thing that did confuse me almost retroactively knowing who the, the monster of the week was, was when they were doing the first person POV, but yeah. it was mm-hmm. from a standard eyeline. So I'm like, are they short now? What happened? Because it should be from up above. What I liked about that was if you'd seen the previous serial, even without actually seeing them until the cliffhanger, you knew who they were. It had that familiar gun effect. You heard their voices. All the clues were there. Yeah, it probably would have taken me a little bit more time if you hadn't have spoiled it, but you're right. (laughs) You ruin everything, Anthony. (laughs) I know. I'm terrible. I did like those shots. I also thought the model work was really good. Yes. Yes. Much better than some other serials, which will remain nameless. Especially recently. Yes. I really like that. I liked the set designs overall, in general. I liked that the base had space. It wasn't just one room. They kind of created a larger place than expected. They made it maze-like, which was nice. Because we actually got to see some more of like the corridors and then trying to get from one place to the other. So that was good. And when we get into the space museum. Again. Another space museum, which was wonderful. My favorite part was the fact that Zoe pressed the button and not Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) It was her turn. I do want to call out, it is eight minutes in before we get the TARDIS crew showing up. I have that same note right next to yet another museum, question mark. I did have a slightly morbid note in that they call Yuri Gagarin the first Earthman in space. Technically, in Doctor Who, he's not. That would be Katerina, who was literally in space. Oh, God. (laughs) Anthony. Sorry. (laughs) That was pretty dark. Yeah. (laughs) But then we get our nice backstory PowerPoint, which is always good. And the people on the base are apparently being threatened by Jack Palance. But the best part of that behind the scenes was, as Riley kind of pointed out, was the whole Jamie was like, a T-Mac can't be foolproof. We have the TARDIS. Look how foolproof that is. (laughs) (laughs) And he's right. Because Jamie is usually right. They just don't listen to him. We did get a shut up Jamie right here, though. I've been counting. (laughs) Thank you. So let's talk about what's going on on the moon. We have one person meet his death by defying the ice warriors and then you have fuchsia breaking down sobbing and saying i want to live i love that line reading i thought that was so wonderfully wimpy and pathetic it was really good yeah i really enjoyed his character his character was wonderful and i enjoyed it so much i didn't care if there was an arc that had him redeem himself at all i didn't care because i just thought like this is just a really well done character that is well written well performed he was a really realistic character. As much as I don't want to like him, because obviously he is a wimp and has no backbone, but he does it well. He stays within character. The character makes sense throughout the whole thing. He does redeem himself, which is kind of nice, but he doesn't do a very good job of redeeming himself. But (laughs) I get your point. And I think the script and the performance drive a fair amount of sympathy for him. He's helping the Ice Warriors, but he clearly feels bad but equally sees no alternative uh it's that or death and they had mentioned before the ice warriors even got there that he was already having just a bad time yeah they were mentioning that oh we should just get rid of him and he's like no 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 give him a chance he's been down on his luck so 
you don't get the whole backstory, but you just know that he's not necessarily going to be a strong character because something has happened in his life. He's already in for a bad performance review. <laughs> then you have that one guy that actually managed to contact Earth and totally had time to get his message out if he just talked a little bit faster. Do you mean MacGyver? <laughs> yes, let's go with MacGyver. <laughs> That's fine. I wasn't very good at writing down the names of the people that died immediately. Oh, wait, yeah. no, no, no. MacGyver was the other one, not the guy who died immediately. One of the people uh, who died, whose last name was Osgood. Yes. That's the one who died immediately. Yes, and I wonder if that was, did Moffat get that from this? Did he get the name? Clara's, yeah, the name yeah. From, from this, I wonder, I guess, right? Maybe. Potentially. I wouldn't put it past him. I was reading another outside reference or reference outside this episode in the Air and Space Museum. I didn't notice it because I wasn't studying close enough, but the transcript that I read claims that the astral map from the wet planet is in the Air and Space Museum. It is. I noticed it at the very end in episode six. I was like, wait, is is that the astral map? (laughs) Mm. Clearly there was a mass run of these things and Eldred (laughs) managed to pick one up. Love it. I do love Eldred's hostility to the TARDIS crew, which they seems to be getting past until Radner shows up. And then he's like, oh, you're clearly in cahoots with this guy. Oh, man. But right before that happened, I think when they were in the other place, the shot of him like from afar and he's just standing there like all majestic. I was like that. That is a great shot. I think that there were a lot of really well done scenes and shots done in this serial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We already touched on the cliffhanger with the attempts to contact Earth and, and resulting in death. And we get to see a new type of Ice Warrior. And that leads us into our cliffhanger and episode two. This, this may take a minute. I'm just warning you. <laughs> I've got a thing here. I, I still Please just go. don't think they should be called Ice Warriors. <laughs> I mean, if they'd fallen into a dung heap, would we call them that? <laughs> and if we look at this serial, we can clearly see that their society is based upon certain principles that I call the Mixalot principle. <laughs> <laughs> they should be called the Arse Warriors. It's clearly based on the size of their bottom. And this guy, Slar, their quote unquote leader, this is his first assignment. Look at him. He's got asthma. He's been bullied as a child, his helmet doesn't fit, and he has no ass at all. Come on. It's no wonder the whole thing goes tits up by the end. And see, here I was thinking that they looked at him with envy because he was so slim and sleek. But I think your theory might hold hold water. This is my head cannon ex- They're the Arse Warriors. Of course, the BBC <laughs> couldn't do that, so they called them the Ice Warriors. But we know what's on. We've seen the badonk docks on those things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. I love it. Headcanon accepted. All right. We do get some gratuitous butt shots of the Ice Warriors <laughs> throughout the story. Hashtag thick. Ex- except Slar. Nothing at all. And I can relate. I can sympathize. It was funny because I, I made a first comment. You first see Slar. So I was like, oh, okay, a redesign. And then, oh, you just come to realize only one of them was redesigned. No, your theory still stands up. They're going for that dark helmet look too. I mean, it just doesn't fit. Like you can mm-hmm. barely see out of it. It's kind of sad, really. It's no wonder he's so angry at everybody. And they still have the crazy Lego hands. Yes. <laughs> That's why they need a human to help them. <laughs> that belongs in a t-shirt. Just one of the Ice Warriors up front that says Arse Warriors on it. Yes. Like it. <laughs> that photo of one of them bending down. And we'd have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for our damn Lego hands. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the story. 
I do like how this story plays that old trick of giving it kind of a global scale by talking about it. You know, New York, Tokyo, Moscow, Calcutta, and they're all being impacted by this TMAP breakdown and food and medicine are being held up. It's, it's an easy way of doing it on a slim budget, basically. But we all have a whole bunch of old white British men. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Obviously, sometime between now and and this story, we reestablish the empire and rule the world again. Duh. <laughs> Not for long, considering their attitude towards backups and redundancy. We've all gone to this new system. We have no rockets anymore. Also, it just happened, but only one person knows how it works. It's fine. That is not good business continuity planning. It was one of the worst things. Yeah, the reliance on one thing is just so bad. Now we get really the shots of MacGyver figuring things out, which was wonderful. I'm sorry, I don't even want to know his real name. But when he's hiding in that one room, how in the world did the Ice Warrior miss him? Uh, yeah. That's a continual problem. Yes. That's a continual problem throughout the serial is that even when they cram another three people in there with him, the ice warriors still can't see him. And it's just, that's not a good set. It's just, and it's tough because the director has done so many good jobs of creating action when there's such limited mm -hmm. space, but he just couldn't overcome that set. That was just too tough. Yeah. If you were an ass warrior, being a warrior is part of that. And you would think that maybe they would have designed helmets that don't restrict the field of vision so severely. <laughs> It is true. They probably don't have very good peripheral vision, but still, it's just... That's a pretty big design fault. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The TARDIS crew is trying to figure out, okay, we're going to go up into space in a rocket. Maybe Kelly should go instead of Jamie. And Jamie's like, I'm perfectly capable of going. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's take the 18th century Scotsman instead of the one person who knows how to fix T-Map. <laughs> Seems sensible. Like, I love Jamie. You know I love Jamie, but that doesn't seem like the smart move. It only would have worked if they had given him something to do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Or given Fraser a week's vacation. Given him something to do. <laughs> I think they handled it fairly well. There were enough episodes to kind of stretch it out a little bit and, and make it work. <laughs> a little bit of stretching. Speaking of, of stretching and padding, I thought the the space, or the, the prep for launch of the rocket, a lot of that feels like padding, but I was sitting there thinking about it and kind of thought about, okay, context of the time, this was 1969, we're right in the middle of the space race, people are watching launches on, on the news and so on all the time. Like, this is so much in the context of what was going on at the time. I think that part was fine. It was just the arguments of Radner and Eldred back and forth about Eldred not wanting them to use his rocket, mainly because he was being petty, which was kind of fun in its own way. But still, we could have cut this a little bit earlier and not lost anything. The whole liftoff sequence was actually, I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. First, we see a QR code. Yes. Throwing that <laughs> out there. <laughs> Um, and then the look on Jamie's face during liftoff is priceless. It's so wonderful. I love him so much. We know. I really enjoyed it. And of course, the moment that they take off and they get to a certain point, everything goes wrong. Yep. As long as our communications stay up, we'll be fine. <laughs> <sighs> we also have Phipps, or as Julie calls him, MacGyver trying to build his radio and an ice warrior coming in on him again. And this time he sees him because that makes sense. But he had a booby trap. He did. 
I, I was impressed. That just disintegrated the Ice Warrior as well. I mean, right? he's just gone. <laughs> this guy, he, it's like, all right, what do I have in this little shop back here? Oh, I can get these and I can get these and maybe this will work. I don't think he meant to disintegrate the creature, but okay. Completely disintegrate. <laughs> we have that. We also have the Doctor and, and friends either going to crash on the moon or drift on endlessly through space because Phipps has damaged the power source on the moon. Good job, Phipps. Episode three, y'all. The opening was slightly different. Yeah. I did not notice. <laughs> I really like the way they did the openings for this serial. Very cool. The model shot. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's very effective. I mean, they're, they're repeating mostly, but it just gives the serial its own identity. And I thought that was very cool. I thought it was rather quaint and nice how we had the TARDIS crew flying in space in something other than the TARDIS. Yes. <laughs> just mm -hmm. There's something funny about that. And I also, calling back, is that I also like the fact that the TARDIS lands and is sitting and waits, basically, an entire serial in an air and space museum. <laughs> that, that is good. Just little little tidbits like that, little clever, little fun little bits are, are the are one of the things I enjoy about this serial. I love the little things, and one of the things that I love is how Jamie is super practical when Zoe's like, it's going to take us five months and then we're going to hit the sun. And Jamie's oh. like, yeah, we're going to die of starvation and dehydration. Thanks. In three days. Yeah. That was, that was cheerful. <laughs> That's what I like about Jamie is they continuously try to play out this whole idea that he's not intelligent and it's like, okay, yeah, he's not a genius, but he's super practical and he's really good at like what I would call like kind of street smarts. Yeah. Yeah. I can't solve this problem, like this like super crazy calculus problem, but I can tell you that we're going to die sooner than that. I, I just thought that was interesting that they continue to kind of play that up. You know, which that leads into, you know, his recognition of the danger therein and then it coming to grips with it for Zoe and the doctor is I love there was a little just camera focus on the doctor crossing his fingers and mm -hmm. hopes that everything works out. What's so wonderful about that zoom is that it, yes, it it was noticeable, but it wasn't like ridiculously like, like really up on him. It's like, you know, if you weren't paying close attention, probably may not have caught it. Like I said, the little things that the director does in this serial that really make it for me. Yeah. Speaking of which, I remembered the space flight scenes as being much longer and taking several episodes. I didn't realize it when I rewatched this. I was surprised when it was only about half an episode. I just remembered it being much, much longer. I liked that because there's only so much you can do on a flight in space. Like, we don't need another Apollo 13. No. Uh, although I know that was after this. I get that. But <laughs> I, the point still stands. It feels like there's almost a couple of scenes missing. You know, Phipps gets the signal working again, and then it cuts to the Ice Warriors, but then suddenly the Doctor's there and he gets to Phipps, and it's it just feels like there's a little bit there's a little bit missing there. Yeah, I can see that. We still don't really have any idea about the outside dimensions of this base. Like in the moon base episode, we could see the outside of the base. But here, for example, how did the first couple Ice Warriors get here? How is the Doctor entering into the moon? It's, it seems very strange in that regard. But I do really like that when he gets there, we have a lovely classic second Doctor run and chase. You mean the Scooby-Doo sequence? Oh, so wonderful. Why is there a hall of mirrors on, on the moon base? I don't care. Okay. Why wouldn't you have a hall of mirrors on a moon base? I think it's to encourage space madness. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is what Osgood was, you know, claimed to have had. I don't care why there were mirrors. I just am glad that they were there. That made it so much fun. Mm -hmm. And it was just a fun little sequence. Just expecting, you know, (laughs) they did a lot with only having what, maybe two or three separate actual rooms. Mm -hmm. It was very cool. They did a very good job with that. Inevitably, the doctor is caught, and that leads to one of my favorite lines of, of the story, which is, your leader will be angry if you kill me. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a genius. Genius. <laughs> and they just listen to him. They're like, oh, well, obviously, if you say you're a genius, you must be one. So, yes, we must take you to our leader. Oh, my God. They're so dumb. And it was during this episode that I realized how, I mean, I kind of knew it already, but I was almost reminded of how terrible they look. They kind of trundle along, almost waddling, arms constantly bent at 90 degrees at the elbow. They're not graceful. They don't look good. I just don't think they're a well-designed monster. The only good part of their design, and I mentioned it in the last time we spoke about the Ice Warriors, the makeup on the lower half of the face and the teeth work, excellent. Mm -hmm. Everything else, like you said, bulky, not intimidating. I mean, it's like being scared of a person in like 200 pounds of medieval armor trying to chase you down. It isn't going to happen. They're very easy to maneuver around. At least they've got their flashlight that they can use as a weapon. But apart from that, yeah. Well, I mean, we move along and there's the, let's see, the doctor. He's rendered unconscious because Pat's off on his holidays again. That's right. Oh, yeah. Didn't he get hit by the exploding balloon? Yes. Yes. One of the seed pods. The so-called seeds of death. Which I originally had written as hard-boiled eggs of death and then it inflated and mark it out. Very sad. Balloons of death. (laughs) Also, one thing before we even get to the very end is that we find out that according to the people that the cities were too reliant on the T-Mats, but the primitive areas were doing well. (laughs) I didn't catch that. Oh my goodness. That's very Brave New World, isn't it? It really (laughs) is. It goes into that whole idea that people who live in rural areas are much more self-sufficient in mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So yeah, it was the, oh, look, look at what the cities are doing. They're becoming so reliant on this thing that if something happens, they can't survive. Yeah. I mean, I think bad things are going to happen with this thing anyway. You get yes. one guy in there with a fly and you got some trouble on your hands. <laughs> Someone gets Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We also get Phipps killing a second Ice Warrior. I mean, he's kind of a badass. As long as they're dumb enough to keep falling for the (laughs) trap, then yeah, sure. Well, they're not going to get any warning because he just disintegrates them, so they never (laughs) find the body of the missing Ice Warrior. (laughs) We never really know how many Ice, excuse me, Ice Warriors there actually are on the base, or like we said before, how they got there. Yeah. I was kind of wondering, there should have been a, a scene where the crew or the doctor and everyone finds Phipps in that room and they encourage him to go off on this other planet. I was expecting him to say like, what are you talking about? What I'm doing is working perfectly. I'm going to keep doing this the entire time. I just need to sit in here. They're going to lazily walk in. I fry them and I'm just going to keep doing that until, until they're all done. Love it. But anyway, we rapidly find out that the Ice Warriors are going to distribute these 
seed pods around the entire planet, starting with, of course, London, because old white dudes. And we get to the end of the episode with the first pod on Earth being received by Radnor, Eldred, and Brent. Cliffhanger. They're not smart enough to close the door. <laughs> no. What is this? Maybe we should, you know, do some quarantine procedures. Nah. Let me put my face in it. It'll be fine. <laughs> <sighs> and so Brent dies at the beginning of episode four. Good job, Brent. And what does he die of? Oxygen starvation. Yes, not asphyxiation or suffocation, <laughs> oxygen starvation. Yes. Yes. So just keep that in mind. You don't die of dehydration, you die of water starvation. <laughs> <laughs> As the smoke is in the headquarters, I'm glad that one place in London actually has air conditioning. Because ah. mm -hmm. air conditioning works that fast. They have very efficient cooling and heating systems in this cereal. Absolutely. I mean, it is the future. You turn that knob and man. <laughs> it's that tiny little fan in the corner. <laughs> Everything's gone. AC and heating, futuristic. Briefcases, terribly outdated. Really just... <laughs> Holding on to a very old technology there. One thing I love here is that we have Zoe and Miss Kelly working together to repair the heat weapon. They are just badass genius women. I love it. Obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They could have used they could have used more scenes together. Yes, one hundred percent. But that's what I've been saying about Zoe for a while. I always thought that I like to see her with other female characters more often. And it should be that way because she has like all the male scenes that she can have with the Doctor and Jamie. So that would just make more sense. What I love about Zoe, though, is they keep her smart. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is her sixth story and she's done something smart. She's had the brains the entire time. They haven't just reduced her to generic screaming female companion like they did with victoria because victoria started off strong yeah considering mm -hmm. a victorian girl she can't be that strong and then she did and i was surprised but then she devolved into screaming they, they turned her into a peril monkey yeah yeah <laughs> anyway we get the return of the bbc foam machine man they're getting a return uh, on their oh. investment for that thing Oh boy. Well, it's it's basically it's Swan Song. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, obviously one of the producers had like a uncle or brother-in-law in the phone business and like cut a deal with them, like got a great deal or like just funneled money to them. That's what it yeah. was. I mean, it's definitely working overtime to show its support for Pat Troughton and his last Base Under Siege story. <laughs> we also have Slaw ordering Fushim to put the Doctor in the T-Mat and send him into space. That's really unnecessarily brutal, because if they wanted to kill him, they could just kill him with their guns. So I think what mm. they're doing here is basically torturing Fusion. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which, it's kind of funny because he didn't need that much of a persuasion, I don't think. No, just don't kill me. <laughs> yeah. It's a little unnecessarily brutal. And maybe it's supposed to try to provide a little bit more character to the Ice Warriors. I mean, it, they need to have something more to them than just waddling, hissing, and trying to conquer things. They need to like have a little bit more style about them. And if their style is utter brutality, that would make them interesting, you know? They're more about brutality than, let's say, the Daleks that are more about efficiency. Well, I mean, the thing here is the Doctor at this point is out cold. He's, if he's going to die, he's not going to notice if he's being beamed into space or if he's being shot on the base. It makes no difference to the Doctor, whereas Fusion, that's going to be way more traumatic for him to have to actually press that button. Well, like I said, maybe they're doing it not to motivate Fusion, they're just doing it because they like to torture him. Yeah, that's basically what they're doing. One thing I adore is Phipps and his freak out. 
I don't think we see many representations of traumatic responses to some quite horrific events that happen in mm. Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that here. And I think it's natural and something that a lot of us would do in these crazy situations. And I just love the representation of that here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially since they had done the, oh, Osgood got spacing this. Oh, no, he, did he actually didn't. But they like alluded to it. And then they actually showed a true case of when something, not quite space sickness necessarily, but just a some other sort of traumatic stress and things like that. I, I did like that. Yeah. Then the other thing I wanted to mention is there's a great story. So we, we get Nice Warrior on Earth just generally causing havoc, kills a bunch of people off screen, which is almost as effective as the rescue story in The Invasion. <laughs> <laughs> and he won the lottery and went driving around the country. <laughs> But while the Ice Warrior is actually out and about causing havoc amongst the foam, there's a great story from filming where the actor playing the Ice Warrior in full makeup was out on Barnes Common where they were filming this in between shots, leant up against a tree smoking a cigarette. And a driver on the road close by was so uh, shocked to see this that he veered off the road and crashed into a tree. <laughs> The driver was fine, but I, I think that's that's a pretty funny story. That person should never come to Atlanta during Dragon Con. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but that's the idea. How about this? Brit Track, Dragon Con, listen to us. Need a Doctor Who party? The Ice Warriors foam party party. <laughs> oh. Just, you know, being a lot of foam, everyone dressed like Ice Warriors or classic Doctor Who characters. Let's get this done. Yes. Nice. I dig it. I mean, how many Jamies are we going to get? So many people already own kilts. It's going to be fantastic. There you go. You could just add some seaweed and make a good cheap costume too. <laughs> Still goes with the foam. Yes, it does. A strict restriction at the door. No one is allowed in unless they're from an episode with foam from classic Doctor Who. <laughs> We'll have 10 attendees. Also, no dodos. Nope. <laughs> we also learn, and, and just to very briefly touch upon it, it's all the northern cities that are getting these seeds. And, oh, hey, they figured out that they're all in winter. Oh, boy. But what what's their end game? Are they just going to take over the northern hemisphere? Or are they just going to leave the southern hemisphere to do whatever it wants? They're going to do like, I think, like snowbirds. They're going to just kind of go back and forth between each... Hemisphere. I thought that was the whole point of the seed pods was it was basically kind of like terraforming. Yeah, that's what I yeah. thought. It was still all in the northern hemisphere. Yeah. Well, I think they're starting with the northern hemisphere because the ice warriors can beam in and be comfortable there and oversee what's happening. And by the time they start sending the seed pods to the southern hemisphere, it's just going to be too late. Right. They'll already have half of the globe and then they can just, yeah. yeah. Which brings up a point, and I know we've discussed this before, but the Ice Warriors, reptilian, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. okay with cold, <laughs> not okay with hot. So they're not cold-blooded. They're Martian reptiles. I mean... This just goes to my point about the name not being correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I still would really love to see them try to take over Australia. I just, <laughs> I really want to see that. Good eye, Cobber. Everything wants to kill you in Australia. So, like, even if they're trying to, like, make it cold, well, let's see you get past the spiders and the alligators and the snakes and everything else that wants to kill you. I let's I'd like to see it, and I swear to fight a kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> Butts for days. We do end the episode with Zoe trying to get into the control room 
and change the temperature to make it too hot for the ice warriors. Wasn't episode four where we had our little bit of sexist Jamie? When he wants to charge in and rescue No, not even that. When him and Zoe are in the tunnels together and he's like, women, did no one else notice that? Oh, when they were discussing who should be going through the grate and Zoe volunteers and Miss Kelly says it's the logical thing to do. No, no, they're actually in the tunnels. Well, Jamie doesn't go in the tunnel with Zoe. No, no, no. Don's right. Well, I don't know if it's in the tunnel, but Don is right. There's a scene where Jamie's like, now which way? Zoe says, I don't know. I'm lost. And then Jamie says, I thought you knew the way. Zoe says, so did I. Let's try this way. Jamie goes and just says, women. That was earlier. I must have missed that somehow. Yeah, he did do that. (laughs) It's the 60s, man. (laughs) He's from 1700s Scotland. Yeah, don't let his monkey's haircut fool you. Nobody's perfect. (laughs) Hey, hey, Mickey Dolan's. Was wonderful, all right? Let the record show I am not criticizing the monkeys or their hair. Episode five? Episode five. So actually, one thing that it did take me a second is I didn't quite 100% realize that Phipps was dead, my (laughs) beloved MacGyver, because they showed that shot where the ice warriors typically kill people, but it didn't do a very good job of showing who was at the end of it. (laughs) Right. So I was like, is it Phipps? is it Zoe? I don't understand. Was there no one there? It took me a a little bit to actually figure that out. Like Riley said, if he just stuck to his original plan and stayed in that room, he could have handled the entire invading force himself. Accurate. But I love the design of the system. The heater, (laughs) it's got like a little ship steering wheel as its dial. I don't understand why that would be it. And then on top of that, So I'm watching this uh, and I was still kind of upset about the Ice Warriors being reptilian but not being comfortable in warm weather or the heat. And so as the temperature increased and we see them, it affect them, I, because being the American that I am and don't know exactly the centigrade, what that would mean to me, I immediately transferred over. So the first time they have a reaction is at 40 degrees centigrade, (laughs) which is 104. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty hot. But then, but then it even gets up to 50 degrees centigrade. That's 122. Even the human beings there would have a problem. But then it even at one point, I swear to you, I saw it. It was up to 60. That's 140 (laughs) degrees Fahrenheit. How the hell are the human beings even walking around at that point? Yeah. And don't say it's a dry heat. No, 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 no. What I was going to say is getting up to the 120s, I can understand because that's what generally a sauna goes up to. Ah, good point. Why would you have your heating unit go up that high in the first place? And also, why would you have to walk in front of a giant light panel to get to the control thing? Bad design. The placement was bizarre. I don't really understand that. That was definitely one of my comments. But two, I can see going up to 120. Like, what if you want to just turn the whole base into a sauna? I mean, it's healthy for you. I'm down. Or maybe the person who created the system, you know, knew of like the possible nuisance of, you know, ass warriors showing up. (laughs) And he's like, hey, here we go. Just, you know, crank up the heat and let that be a lesson to all listeners. Got some ass warriors coming to your house. Just turn up the heat on your heater and that's it. All taken care of. We do get one semblance of a horrible boss. A Ratna's boss? Sir James. He's really just that your stereotypical terrible boss. He doesn't yell and scream necessarily, but he just doesn't listen. He's very tuss. And you try to explain things to him, and then he doesn't let you finish explaining. And then he's like, but this is what it is. And I'm like, well, no, you're not listening to what I'm saying. And he's like, but this. And you're just like, well, okay, fine. Don't listen to me. Like the reason you still don't understand is because you haven't bothered to listen to what I'm explaining to you. 
shut up. Yeah, he shows up late and, and expects everyone to tell him what's going on to catch up when he should have been there earlier after like how long has this emergency gone on? And yet, like you said, everyone tries to explain it to him, but then he shuts everybody off. It's just, yeah. at least he doesn't last very long. He's not there for right. a long yeah. period of time. So it's like, all right, you're just a little bit of a nuisance for about five minutes and then we move on. I have a question. This is primarily for Andy because he pays attention to this kind of stuff. Do we have a little bit of future Earth continuity because they're going to the weather control station? So I'm not sure whether it's deliberate future Earth continuity or whether it's convenience in this era's general obsession with weather control. That's fair. But possibly. And I do like that. Because I noticed it and it the whole base under siege thing is a little bit Cyberman-esque. In mm -hmm. fact, they probably could have done this plot and they could have sent cybermats instead of exploding bubbles. But then we wouldn't have got the foam machine, so who needs that? Yeah. yeah. Foaming cybermats. <laughs> Scrubbing bubbles. Duh. <laughs> and again, they used a a sort of weather control in the other Ice Warrior story as well. Yeah. Yeah. To melt the, the glaciers. Put that on your second Dr. Bingo card. <laughs> So we've got a base under siege. We've got a not too bad, but not good boss. Check. Foam. We've got weather control. Foam. Six episodes. <laughs> the moon, where we've had the Cybermen twice before, if you include them hiding behind us in the invasion. I mean, this is, this is like the second Doctor era greatest hits compilation. <laughs> I guess because he's on his way out. Give the people what they want, I guess. I mean, the ratings were decent or good, so people liked what they had before. Just keep giving them changes off the original thing. They don't need to change the setting, location, or a lot of other items because you just have such a strong doctor and such strong yeah. companions that they can carry mm -hmm. the show even if the outside is the same. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I did like there was one shot in all of this where the phone starts to like cover up the lens of the camera, and I thought that was yeah. really cool. One thing, just we didn't cover it when we we're talking about the beginning of this episode, but I found it hilarious how Jamie and Miss Kelly tried to go hand to hand against an ice warrior. Like he's not got this thick chitinous shell on him. You know, they're, they're just like, let's just try and take him out with our fists. And yet at the same time, the fight looks like they're trying really hard not to damage the suit. <laughs> to be fair, it doesn't surprise me with Jamie because that's what Jamie does. I think it's, is it in this episode or episode six where he he yells his little battle cry as he's charging oh, one of them? Oh, it's in the next one. Yeah. Yeah. It's in six. He yells in Gaelic. Yes, he does. Yep. Kregantor. <laughs> I love it. I remember when the one lone ice warrior who finally gets into the weather control bureau and he destroys that machine from the wet to dry or whatever. Yep. I was sitting there thinking and I was like, this doesn't make any sense because what does dry have anything to do with it with cold? And then I was sitting there, I was like, well, maybe it has to do with like water. And then I like sat for another like half an episode and I was like, yep, I was right. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pretty big signpost at that point. Once the Ice Warrior destroys the controls between dry and wet, that that's somehow going to be part of the res resolution. I like that those are the only options. The <laughs> machine dry, wet. And why do they need four of them? Why do they need four levers for, I guess it's for different locations of the earth? Different locations or different levels of wetness. Four times the wetness. <laughs> <laughs> 
talking about like your your tropical forests and then your temperate forests and then your you know your deserts. There's different levels. You have you have one set to wet and and three to dry, and that's like your British kind of drizzle. <laughs> you set all four to wet, and it's like your southern monsoon type nonsense that we see here every spring. That's how it clearly works, and everything. All the other combinations are somewhere in between. <laughs> For more tutorials on how to use the weather machine, check out our YouTube channel. One question that I did have is, when the other ice warriors start to come into the moon base, how in the world do they know where the thermostat is? Great question. Because <laughs> it's not in an obvious location. No, no. And why is Sla so much more functional than the other warriors in the heat? Because he's not wearing all that extra gear. He doesn't have the extra badonkadonk padding either. He's much leaner. Yeah, he's just wearing a unitard. <laughs> he's fine. Is he? Obviously, he lost that badonkadonk in the sauna. I thought uh... you were going to say in the war. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> nope, in the sauna. He's been tricking all the other ice warriors. He's like, I've been preparing for this. Back to the seed pods. So we have the doctor <laughs> promising to be careful and not to repeat getting too close. And then he promptly stands too close to one as it's exploding, which is absolutely typical. And then he finds the answer to the whole thing again when he's standing way too close to one and it's about to explode again. Dude. The doctor failed a lab safety class. That's all <laughs> yes. I'm saying. Doesn't pay any attention. He missed his field work safety session as well. Yeah. He paid attention. It's just that he decided to do the exact opposite. <laughs> uh, okay. The other question I have here is, have Jamie and Zoe learned absolutely nothing from their time on the show? When they're sitting there and decide, hmm, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Guys, that's not how yeah. this show works. <laughs> You're going to get in trouble. Considering Jamie's had nothing to do the entire serial, it's fine. Yeah. And as soon as they get there, Jamie's like, I'm going to lock the door to keep the warrior out. <laughs> Dude. Dude. Warrior's already in. Yeah, that wasn't his smartest moment. No. I have a question. Who exactly is the Grand Marshal Ice Warrior? And why is his helmet bedazzled? Status. I had the same so question. Beautiful. So you know how Slar decided that he wanted to be different, so he lost some weight. Mm -hmm. The Grand Marshal decided that the way he was going to stand out was by bedazzling himself. I dig it. It works. Status symbol, yo. Yep. Yeah. I believe they call it peacock. Someday we will know the <laughs> mysteries of our warrior culture. <laughs> yes, we will. But it is not this day. It is not this day. No. I want to see what else they take from late night infomercials. <laughs> Shake weights. Delightful culture. <laughs> I would fall right out of their Lego hands. <laughs> we also have Fushim's final act of yeah. bravery, which I, I really like this. Cool. I really do. I'm glad he finally grew a spine. I like that he grew a spine, and I also like what they did from a visual perspective, where it did that fade in from the video mm -hmm. to the like in person shot. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, another example of the good direction, and also. I don't know if it was the actor or it was the director that told Slar to do this, but I love the fact that instead of that overly drawn out, like Slar looking around like, why is he doing that? Why is he acting like he's on camera? He didn't. He like immediately just turned, looked where the camera was like, it's recording, kill him. And then they killed the cameraman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do love how 
blatantly they signpost what's going to happen to the Martian fleet with Fusion talking about <laughs> them being shot into the sun if they miss the signal. I'm like, okay, see where this is going. If it just winked at the camera really big. <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, back on Earth, the foam machine is really going into overdrive as Troughton is clearly having the time of his life in it. That's true. <laughs> I love that like acrobatic thing that he does when he's like hiding and trying to get away from the foam. It's wonderful. <laughs> he has such a flair for physical comedy. Oh. And it's kind of a shame that we don't see it more often, but I guess they can't do that too much. It's it's a sci-fi show. It's not a comedy show. But man, could he really do some stuff? It's almost Chaplin-esque. Because it's a lot of physical comedy. That yeah. Buster Keaton, that kind of vibe. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. Episode six. With the foam continuing to rise in what is clearly a hell of a farewell for that machine. Maybe they broke the machine in this story. And in this scene, you can actually see Wendy Padbury break. When Troughton comes through the door covered in foam, you can see her start to laugh. I gotta go back and look at that. To be fair, Zoe would make fun of the doctor mm -hmm. anyway, so... It works. Jamie causes the distraction so that Zoe can let the doctor in because that's what Jamie does. And he does such a better job of hiding than the other guy who had been in the weather bureau earlier and had died. <laughs> yeah. Jamie's like, oh yeah, I totally got this. Jump the corners. I need to be around the corners before it shoots at me. I'm like, yeah, there you go. They use Jamie's agility versus the lumbering ice warrior. I mean, <laughs> they are badly designed monsters and I'm not going to stop saying that. And of course, we get the Doctor building another solar energy weapon. Yeah. Portable now. He got the idea from MacGyver. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Question on this. We very, very shortly see the Doctor just killing the Ice Warrior himself. That seems a little out of character to me. Little bit, little bit. It's a hit or miss every once in a while. I think it's because it's so direct. Because yeah. there are often times when the Doctor ends up killing other people, but it's never been like a one-on-one -on -one confrontation. It's always been as a, oops, uh, this one action that I took accidentally like killed all these others. Yeah, and in like how doctors usually, you know, in the regeneration cycle take on a little bit of the, you know, still have a, a lingering characteristic of the previous one. He still retains the first doctor's bloodlust for <laughs> smashing someone's head in with a rock. <laughs> so he just really wants to like get his hands in there and really do something. Yeah. And I tend to give a little bit of more leeway when there's this confrontation where it's either you shoot or he shoots, which is where we're at mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. versus when, oh, it's this like overarching invading force and he's simply stopping the entire force. Like there, there seems to be like a difference there because one is a much more immediate, I'm about to die, I need to do something. Yeah, but he does eventually team at to the moon to go off and kill the ice, the surviving ice warriors himself. I mean, that's yeah. brutal. He could have let someone else do he that. He really just went to go and mess with the beacon. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wasn't going up there to go all John McClane and kill them all. <laughs> but he, that's what he does. Yeah. He's just casually gunning them down. To be fair, Slar was killed by his own henchman. Accidentally, mm -hmm. but still. Yep. And I love how Jamie... Is like, I can't let the doctor be by himself. I need to go help. That was a great moment there for him. Like Don said, he was a bit sidelined for this serial. We got enough of him, but I just just enough, but we could have dealt with a lot more of him. But that was a really great moment for him. And that was just uh, really nice to see him like, no, I need to get up there. Now that shows that bond between the two of them. Yeah. So I did want to touch on 
back at weather control before the doctor beams up to the moon the fact that he gets to mess around with wiring again as he's trying to fix the controls which i think is just so classic Troughton. <laughs> i love that mm-hmm. oh it's so cute when he's just like covered in wires and he's like if i do these nope 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 that doesn't work what about these <laughs> i'm just like yeah. that's <laughs> adorable anyway i realize i'm jumping all over the place but back to the resolution <laughs> back to episode one there was this bit i really liked <laughs> sorry I do like the fake out that they keep the noise of the beacon going Mm -hmm. when it's actually already been deactivated and the Martian fleet is heading into the sun and the Grand Marshal blames Sla and the Doctor is just so proud of himself. Oh, you had that great with my last breath I cursed Zoidberg moment coming from the (laughs) (laughs) It's a very kind of vengeant Doctor, the one who casually microwaves Ice Warriors and sends the entire fleet into the sun. It's the kind of thing you you might expect more the 10th Doctor in his most... Extreme? Yeah, moments to do. It seems a little brutal for the second Doctor. But remember, depending on their stores, they may starve to death before they go into the sun. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Which is, of course, so much a better death than instantaneously just burning up. So much more humane. (laughs) We've defeated the Ice Warriors. T-Mat is functional again weather control is functional medicine and food is getting everywhere eldred's gonna get his space program and our heroes conveniently sneak off and ooh, is that the astral map that's when i noticed it <laughs> ah yeah you gotta love the old slip away the slip away the old slip away without saying goodbye i don't know why it works it should be the default unless we have like a really strong like character relationship with someone from the episode but for something like this just do the old slip away on to other adventures are we not not gonna mention that the humans have learned nothing <laughs> yeah yeah we don't need to mention that because guess what humans never learn ah, so that's true <laughs> that's true but with the doctor running off unless they're going to be introducing a new companion i agree slip off just go away well i actually want to give a shout out for commander radner i actually really liked him as a character I thought he was well played by ronald lee hunt but that's the last i'm gonna say on that he'll be back in doctor who the actor not the character sadly all right Shall we rate this bad boy? Yes. Oh, yes. All right, Don, we start with you this time. Oh, my God. I'm not. I've taken the (laughs) Judy role of not being ready. (laughs) Welcome. This does have the hallmarks of kind of a greatest hits type episode, depending on how you feel about the preceding season five. It's a base under siege that tries to hide really hard. It's it's a base under siege. The Arse Warriors are kind of silly. They don't quite work but that's part of the fun a little bit of padding especially where we essentially have two episodes of old men arguing whether or not one can have the other's rocket (laughs) probably could have been cut down been much sleeker at four episodes and sometimes the music was just annoyingly bad and sometimes it was really good the acting was good the direction was really good They did a lot of interesting things in camera. I actually liked the annoying computer voice because it was different. You could understand what it was saying. So it's not the best, but it's pretty solid. So I'm going to give it seven asthma inhalers out of 10. (laughs) All right, Julie, you're next. I um, think I I liked a few more things than Don did. So I actually enjoyed this. It is a much better showing of the Ice Warriors than the first serial of them was. The music, yes, was a little bizarre at times, but the direction was really good. And we had such a good character with MacGyver. Yes, I will continue to call Phipps MacGyver. (laughs) 
and I just really enjoyed it. I just had a lot of fun, but it does have its its downsides, but I'm going to give it 7.5 MacGyvers out of 10. Wow. All right, Riley. I don't know why I feel so positive about this serial. <laughs> it reuses an old villain for no purpose. Like Don said, it's another base, well, a base taken over story, base under siege, whatever. And there's more foam. <laughs> I think this is an example of what happens like when you have like a gourmet chef is told to make a very basic dish, but their skill and just a few additions they do to it, a little, you know, this and that, it becomes something so much better than what it could have been or what it should have been. And it's fantastic. Specifically, I thought, as everyone has said, the direction is amazing. The writing does just enough little changes here and there to make it interesting to the formula that we've seen before. If we could have changed out the Ice Warriors with some other threat and maybe given that threat some depth to their motives other than just world conquest, I think this could have been really, really, really high up there. But hey, I still enjoyed it. So I will give it seven and a half bedazzled Ice Warrior helmets out of 10. Okay, that leaves me. And honestly, I didn't think I would like this one. I didn't have fond memories of it. And I was kind of dreading watching it after the Ice Warriors back in season five. I was not looking forward to their return. I don't know why my memories of this one were so poor. Probably because I hadn't seen it in a while and I was mixing it up with the Ice Warriors. But I really enjoyed this as well. I mean, you've all touched on the fact that this is fundamentally greatest hits of the Troughton era. I do love the the massive use of the foam machine. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. A lot of great characters. They flesh out the Ice Warriors a little and, and give them a hierarchy. The music's good. The direction's great. Yeah. So I'm going to give this seven T-mats out of 10, which gives us a story average of 7.25, which is our third highest of the season. So mm. good job, y'all. And that brings us to the end of the episode. We will be back next time when we will encounter some pirates in space in a story called The Space Pirates. No massive spoilers there then. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, The Mix-A-Lot Principle, was recorded on Wednesday the 17th of March 2021. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. You can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a rating or review on your favourite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you decide to invade a planet where 70% of the surface is made of water, it's probably best that your main invasion mechanism isn't vulnerable to water.